human beings, but that there is a relationship that God, from the beginning of the pages of the Bible, in the beginning God, that God is the one, that the most important figure in the entire Bible, the biggest figure in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is God himself. And that he created man, and, and if you look at the, um, the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, the, the word that is used there to describe the fact that we are made in God's image, this is a unique privilege and a unique thing, is the word icon. That there is something special about human beings in relationship with God and reflecting God and, and bearing God's image that, that we lose in this world. The reason being it's fallen. And one of the things that happens in a fallen world, obviously, is that, is that God is dishonored, that, that, uh, that people do not flourish the way that they are in a garden, and the, the world itself is in bondage to decay, and that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And one of the, 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 the ramifications of that is that human beings are diminished. That human beings are diminished. Human beings were created in the image of God. They were given specific tasks to perform in the image of God on the earth and being removed from the garden because of fallenness and sin entering into the world. There is a diminishment. There is a, 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 dilute, a diluting of that iconship that human beings bear in, in reflecting God's glory and reflecting God himself. And, and we see that on, 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 a, on a very regular basis in our world. Uh, the world, in trying to, to create autonomy from God and trying to create human beings that, that are autonomous and do not need God and, be, and are beyond, if you use the language of existentialism, beyond good and evil and, and beyond the, 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 the normal moralities that, that have been in the world ever since the creation of the world, what we find is that human beings are not flourishing, but that the world is very good, not at creating somebodies, but creating nobodies. And you find it in a lot of different ways. You find it in, in the, the, the color of a person's skin. We forget that human beings man and women are made in the image of God and that they, they, they are icons of, of that glory. And yet in this world that we live in, fallen as it is with thorns and thistles and scars and blemishes and all of that, that bondage that the world itself is in, in bondage to decay, we find ourselves making nobodies because of skin color. Or we make nobodies because of, of, of perceptions of what beauty is. One of the really big ones in the Western world right now is athleticism. If you want to be a somebody, then you need to be an athlete. And somebody that is not athletic, somebody that does not have a, a, a graceful body is, is a nobody. There are all of, you get the point. There are all of these different ways that, that we run into everyday people who perceive of themselves as nobodies. And you see it in the way that they comport themselves. You see it in the, when you listen to their language. You hear it in the words that they use not only to describe the world but sometimes to describe themselves. You, you, see, you see the rise of mental illness rising in the Western world because of all of this diminishment of human beings and the struggle with depression and, and all of these different things. It's all, it is all indicative of the fact that we have walked out of that relationship with God. We have walked out from His presence. We have walked out from His, His, His blessing and His, His grace and His holiness and His love. And in trying to make those things ourselves we have just counterfeited them and human beings have been paying the price for that ever since 
But the gospel is really about how God is completely changing things. The gospel is about the reversal of the effects of sin. That first and foremost, at the most profound sense, it's about you know, where there was this messed up relationship because of not trusting God and a lack of faith and a lack of obedience to God, a lack of love for God, a lack of relationship with God. There is now relationship through forgiveness because of the faith that we have in what Christ Jesus has accomplished. But at another level, the gospel reverses the effect of sin in the way that we live our life and the way that we relate to one another. That instead of living out with the toxins of fear in our heart and the implications of that fear as driving people away and, 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 and guarding ourselves from them and protecting ourselves from them and, and not being generous and not being loving and not being sacrificial, one of the effects of the gospel is that it opens us up to love people. And this is, this, in fact, the very beginning of the gospel is about God loving people. And this is one of the things that we see over and over again in the Gospels about Jesus. One of the things that I, that I would hope that you would do this year is, you know, as you're reading through the Bible, that you would take one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and those synoptic Gospels, or John, and read one of those Gospels about the life of Jesus at least once through sometime this year as you're doing your daily Bible readings. And what we find in John chapter 4 is probably one of the best-known stories about Jesus' interaction with somebody who believes themselves to be a nobody. And so these Pharisees are hearing that Jesus is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, and because their, their reputation and because of their own self-well-being and, and their, their sense of that is based on their following they begin to get a little bit nervous about Jesus because he's gaining and baptizing more disciples than, than John the Baptist, who they really identify with. And although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples, Jesus decides it's time for him to, 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 to head home. And he, when he learns of this, he leaves Judea, and he went once, uh, once again back to the north to Galilee. And he goes through this area in the middle of, of Palestine, in the middle of Israel, known as Samaria. And he comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground that everyone knew about. Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And because it's about the middle of the day and they've been on a long journey and you know perhaps that time of year is, is just a little bit more arduous on the body to travel that way, he sits down by this well and it's noon. And then here she comes. A Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And, and Jesus does, naturally, one of the most, um, most eye-popping things that he could have done in the world at that time. He asks her a question. And inherent in that question is sort of some vulnerability. I need your help. He says, will you give me a drink? Now his disciples are not there. They've gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman is taken back by this. And she goes, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John has this little parenthetical statement, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now that goes all the way back to, to the time when we had this split, this split kingdom. You know, after the time of, of, uh, of Solomon, you know, Rehoboam, his son, becomes, you know, the king of Israel. 
and there's this, this really bad advice. He gets some really good advice from the older men. He takes the bad advice from the younger men who are telling him that, you know, one of the things you need to do because, you know, this Jeroboam who had been exiled to, to Egypt by his father Solomon has come back, and he's, he's telling Rehoboam, you know what you need to do? You need to just kind of back off a little bit and allow the people to rest. Your father Solomon has built this great nation, but at great cost on the backs of the people that, that he, was, he was ruling. And if you give the people a little bit of, of a rest everything's going to be fine. The old men say, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. Follow that advice. But then he goes, Rehoboam goes to some of his young guys. And you know how it is with young guys. They got to, you know, they, it's more important not to, it, to, to be strong than it is to be wise sometimes, right? And so they go and say, no, 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 no. You got to show some strength. You got to show some teeth. And you got to show that you're the guy in charge because Solomon is great and you're just as great. You got to show some teeth. And so that's what he does. The kingdom splits. You've got 10 tribes going to the north under that Jeroboam who's come back from Egypt and Rehoboam takes two tribes in the south. Now, one of the things that Jeroboam did, as you uh, recall, is that he set up these places of worship in the north because he did not want the people going down into Jerusalem and worshiping in the south and worshiping in Jerusalem and, 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 and seeing that great, great temple and their hearts being turned that direction again. So he sets up these places of worship up in the north. And that begins to lead the people in kind of this spiraling uh, uh, apostasy that finally leads to a lot of prophets showing up in the north like Amos and, and, and Hosea and basically they're saying you know you, you've lost your way and you've lost your mind I mean God is, is great and you're, you're chasing after you're chasing after idols and, and even though there is still this contact with Torah and God's word there is, there is, there is no sense there is no uh, evidence of it in the way that you treat people the further you move away from God, the worse you treat people. And the prophets kept saying and coming and saying and coming and saying, if you do not change, if you do not repent, there is going to be some punishment that's going to come that will boggle your mind. And in 721 it came. Those Assyrians came down from the north and they completely raised Israel to the ground and carried the people off into captivity. Those that were worth, that could travel and those that were worth keeping. And the Assyrians kind of had a, a way of occupying a land, and that was to, to bring in people that they had captured, who they had uh, absorbed into their own armies. They had put those people into the places of occupation. And while the Jewish people are recovering and trying to eke out um, a way of living with this devastated land, the Jewish people begin to marry the people who were not of Jewish uh, ancestry. They begin to marry these foreigners. And once South uh, Judah is taken off into captivity and the people begin to come back into the land um, about, uh, uh, about 436 B.C., what they find is that there is a group of people that are no longer completely Jewish in the land, and they are Samaritans. They are those people in the north in the area of Samaria where the capital of the north had been, and they have married, and they are no longer of, of, of pure Jewish lineage and pure Jewish blood. And there began to be this prejudice that was built up against them because the marrying of these foreigners was seen as a, kind of a betrayal of their faith. It was seen as a betrayal of God. And there began to be this animosity that grew between the Jewish people that began to populate the land and the Samaritans who had been there. And you have two groups of people occupying 
what is Israel at that time, but they do not like each other in the least. In fact, the rabbis came up with all kinds of rules and regulations about going through Samaria on your way to, to uh, the Galilean region or going down to the south through, through, uh, through Samaria to Judah or whether or not you had to cross the Transjordan to get down there. They come up with all of these rules about how you are to handle contact with Samaritans. And so here is Jesus going through that land, a land that the Jewish people considered not just to be filled with, 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 with traitors and people who had betrayed their Jewish heritage and had, had disobeyed the prophets, but, but people who were nobodies. People who were nobodies. People that you did not speak with. People that you tried to, 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 to keep away from. And there was absolutely no misgivings, there was no misperceptions, there were no misunderstandings about that relationship. And that's why when Jesus sits down by that well, and here comes this woman in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, to draw water out of that well, and when he asks her, can you give me a drink? She goes, what in the world? You're a, a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where you, can you get this living water and are you greater than our father Jacob? And she goes into all of this and Jesus in verse 13 says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And it's at that point that Jesus sort of asked her kind of a weird question. Go call your husband and come back. She says, um, well, the truth of the matter is I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. You know, when you interact with people like this and the subject always turns back to religion somehow, everybody has a religious question. Was the thief on the cross really saved? She says, and she has a question too. Our fathers, Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declares, that's the point. Connecting to God again. Time's coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that God seeks. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes. He'll explain everything to us. She's trying to back out. She's trying to say, well... My preacher back home is going to be able to tell us something. You know, her point is, you know, the Messiah is going to come. When the Messiah gets here, he's going to explain everything. Jesus says what? Ta-da, I am he. 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Now, isn't that just the way it is with the disciples of Jesus from time to time? But no one asks him, what do you want or why are you talking with her? The funny thing there is, why even mention that unless John knew that that's what they were thinking? You know, one of the hard facts that sometimes a church has this really difficult time getting its mind around and its, its arms around is just how sometimes the people who, who, who call themselves the children of God are the ones who actually are the ones that are creating nobodies in culture. That there is a standoffness, there is a, a separation, there is a judgmental attitude. Sometimes there's, a, there's a, just this tremendous pessimism that pervades everything that, that the church does in terms of outsiders, and that's what happens here. They're surprised. Why in the world is is Jesus talking to this woman? That doesn't make sense. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. He's a man, and he's Jewish. He's got better things to do. There is no way that she can contribute anything to his well-being. There is nothing that she has that he would ever want. You know, the disciples have a way of doing this, and they have to kind of be be taught out of it. Over in John chapter 9, as they're going along, John says in John chapter 9, verse 1, as they're going along, they see this man who is born blind. I mean, he is never seen in his life. And, the, and, and, and Jesus is going to heal this man. But the thing that kind of triggers the conversation is the disciples go, um, that fellow right there that was born blind, who is it that really sinned? His mom and dad, and this is their punishment, or somehow did this guy sin, and that's why he's born blind? That has the consequences. You see, what, what they see is, is a sinner. The very first words of that text, John chapter 9, verse 1 says, As he was going along, Jesus saw a man, born blind, but he saw a man, where the disciples saw a sinner. And saw here is an opportunity for us to get some theological instruction. And they think that they're going to get something deep, that is, we're going to talk about the nature of sin. And what Jesus wants to talk about is this. This man, neither his parents nor this man sinned that he was born blind. He was born blind that you might see the work of God. In other words, see the man as an opportunity for the power of God to come into his life. Now back in Samaria, near Sychar, at Jacob's well, they're having to learn this lesson. That this Samaritan woman who's come in the middle of the day to draw water is, is a, a, a possible recipient of God's love and grace. But they're surprised that Jesus is even talking to her. The one that they believe has the words of life and that they're willing uh, a couple of chapters later, later to even put their lives in danger. I mean, Peter's going to say, where else are we going to go as everybody else was leaving him? Jesus asked him, do you want to go too? And, and Peter says, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. They are starting to get that, but they're not making the connections yet. And they, they're just going, why in the world is he talking to her? Now, here's the other thing about this woman. All of the scholars talk about the significant fact that she has gone to draw water in the middle of the day. That's the hottest part of the day. Nobody in West Texas or in South Texas would want to go to the well and pick up the water, which you know a gallon weighs eight pounds, and carry it, and that's your day's worth of water for cooking and drinking and washing and whatever. 
and carry it in the heat of the day, this distance from wherever this, this well was located, back to the village. But there's a reason why she's doing that. Instead of going in the early morning or maybe even the late evening when it's cool, she has to go in the middle of the day. Why do you think? Boy, she is so messed up on men and messed up on marriage that nobody wants to be with this nobody. It's made her outcast. It's made her somebody, sort of this persona non grata. It's just she, it's made her this person that nobody wants to be around. And, and people, even if they do not say you're not welcome, she knows she's not welcome, and that's why she's going, and she's there by herself, a woman traveling by herself to get the water. No one, no one is with her. Thus they're shocked. Why in the world, Jesus, are you talking to her? Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Why do you think John put this little detail? He, he could have just said, Boy, she just had this wonderful, extraordinary uh, encounter with Jesus, and she's so fired up that she just heads back to town. No, he tells us that she leaves the water jar there and goes back. Probably because she really wanted to go fast, maybe. Didn't want to carry a couple of, you know, a couple of uh, gallons of water with her and slow her down. She's got to get back to town. Or maybe the reason that John puts that in there is that her encounter with Jesus as a nobody talking to the creator of the heavens and the earth has touched her so profoundly and deeply that that thing that she picks up every day to carry down to the well that reminds her that she's a nobody, to remind her of all of those failed marriages, to remind her that she is alone and that to a lot of people she's invisible, where they're walking around with bodies she's only a shadow. It's a reminder that she is a nobody after an encounter with the Messiah. She leaves that reminder of her nobodiness and goes back to town and tells people, I have met him. I've met him. And this begins to afford the, the disciples an opportunity to, to learn a little bit more. And they said, you know what, Rabbi, you need to eat something. That's why we went to town. That's why we came back. We, we have some food. Uh, he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples are a little bit thick. Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What did he mean when he said to finish his work? To finish the redemption that creates the gospel that means that everything is different and reverses the effects of sin in the world. I've come to do that. And then he tells them, think about fields. Think about fields. Think about how if you've got an eye that's trained... You know when things are growing and you know when things have grown to a point where they begin to, 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 to bear fruit. And, and even if you have the eye that's trained and you have an eye that's sensitive, that you have a way of knowing that this is the time in which you collect what has grown in all of these plants to, to, to collect the produce, to collect the harvest. You know, I'm not much of a farmer. 
But I guarantee you that I, I don't have an eye that's sensitive like that when it comes to farming. I, you know, if you, left, if you put me in charge of the tractors, I'm mowing the hay probably too early or too late. But Jesus says if you have the right kind of eye, you can see that the field is not just ready for harvest, but white unto harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop. And to make sure that they begin to understand that he's not talking. Because they're thinking literally about food. And he's talking about something else. And to make sure that he knows that they know that he's not talking literally about wheat or, or barley or corn or milo. Whatever it might be. Oats. He says crop for eternal life. That's the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Look to the fields. Grow in your understanding of what fields look like. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the, the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, in verse 39, we get back to the lady. Many, many of the Samaritans in that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days unheard of. If you were a Jewish person going through Samaria, you might need to spend the night. The rabbi said, that would be okay as long as you, you know, kind of made some precautions. Jesus stays for two days. That's another way of saying he's going an extra mile. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world you know i think what is 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 one of the neatest things about this entire story is i, I mean it is at, at so many different levels i mean you have jesus who's interacting with this person who not only believes herself to be a nobody but that's being reinforced and reaffirmed every day in her interactions with people that she doesn't look right when it comes to to marital status she, morally she doesn't look right according to the teachings of moses she just does not look right therefore we got to quarantine we got to push her out we got to isolate her so that she doesn't infect anybody so that's why she's going in the middle of the day and Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, asks her for a drink of water that opens up the door for him to talk to her as if she is a somebody. And I think that one of the things that happens when the gospel gets into our hearts and we find ourselves interacting with people in the world that, that are struggling with with. with Ultimately, everything is a struggle back to God, right? Is that the, the, the people that God has turned into somebodies takes on the job of taking, of, of taking people who perceive themselves to be nobodies and helping them to see that they're somebodies. And that's what the, happens with this woman. She leaves that water jar, she goes back to town, and a town is changed because the Messiah, the Creator, the, the God, the Son, has taken the time to break down some barriers and to share with this woman that it really, 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 everything in life really gets back to connecting to God. Time's now coming. Worship, spirit, and truth. Those, that's what God is looking for. As we go out this week, one of the things that I would ask you to pray for is for those kinds of eyes that are that are sensitive to where the field is 
to be able to, to discern where the field is, to be able to see when the fields are white unto harvest, that the fields are white unto harvest. To be able to see that, to have that kind of sensitivity that understands that this is, this is a time. This is a time for reaping. And also to have the strength of, of, of character to see that maybe this is a time for sowing. That a lot of times one of the ways that you get to, to reaping is by doing a lot of hard work when it comes to the sowing. And that every opportunity that you have, as Jesus will say in John chapter 9, no one sends uh, this man's mother or father or, or himself that he was born blind. He was born blind so that you, 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 you disciples might be able to see the power of God. That this man is a candidate for the power of God to come into his life. And sometimes that takes a lot of sowing. And the final thing I would say this pray about as we go into the world and, and we're, we're, we're looking specifically for people that to reach out to those nobodies is to understand that that is our job. That is one of the missions that we have to finish the work that Jesus was sent into the world to complete is to continue that and that is to reverse the effects of sin. For those of us who were nobodies because of our sin and we realized that, that there was nothing we could do to right our relationship with God, it had to be Him. We could get baptized as many times as we wanted, as, as wet as we wanted, but unless God saves us, we're not saved. And to see that God has taken a bunch of nobodies and turned them into somebody's children, heirs of promises, beloved children and members of, 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 of God's family and citizens of his kingdom. Take those somebodies who understand as recipients of that grace, the power of that love, and to go into that world knowing that their mission is to do the same. Those people who think of themselves as nobodies, to help them understand how they become somebodies. Jeff, you want to lead us in a song right now? What are we singing? There's power in the blood. Sometimes you pick them right. <laughs> One of the most wonderful things in the world is to sit down and, and to share the Word of God with somebody where they get it and they understand it. And you see the lights turn on. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe what you're wanting for us to do tonight is to have an opportunity to sit down and to talk about the gospel in such a way that the lights come on. And we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front that can do that. Or it may be that you just need the prayers of the congregation to help you with something in life, whatever it might be. We want you to come down and talk to the shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Would you be free from the burden?